Hello and welcome to Ben's Multi-Story Podcast. And in this episode, we talk to Daniel Meadows. May not be a household name like his college friend Martin Parr, but he can lay claim to making some of the most iconic images to come out of Manchester in the 70s. The last 15 minutes or so, he talks about his friend Tony Wilson of Factory Records, Joy Division, and how he has a unique Duruti Column album. Enjoy. Why photography? It strikes me that when you were making that choice, it almost wasn't the populist medium it is now, where everyone takes photos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why photography? It's a, it's a very good question, um, and I would say, well, it never was just photography because I always recorded audio as well. So a lot of my the people I photographed have audio recordings that fit with them. And so for a large part of my life as a documentarist, meeting strangers and recording stories, um, I was yearning to match the pictures with the words. And it didn't couldn't happen until the digital age when we had a new set of tools that enabled us to do that on on the kitchen table because up to then all the tools that matched pictures with sound were you know of industrial scale and controlled by uh, large organ media organizations and were very strictly the use of them was very strictly governed and then controlled by trade union practices and all the rest of it it was very difficult to get access to the equipment you might need to do that so yeah i would say photography yes but sound was always important too. So, um, but the photography did come first, and it came first because I saw a film on the television when I was 17 in 1969 called Beautiful, Beautiful, uh, which featured uh, many famous uh, photojournalists, uh, Don McCullen and Larry Burroughs in particular, George Roger. But the one who really hit me was Bruce Davidson working on his East 100th Street project in New York, photographing Harlem. And he talked about how this is 1969, it's the year we've landed on the moon, and we're exploring space. But we don't spend any money at all on exploring our neighbours and people who live two blocks from us down the street. And I remember thinking that that was a very powerful message to me as a young, curious, uncertain bloke who was still at school and wondering what I was going to do. And um, so, yes, I saw the Bruce Davidson, Bruce Davidson in, the, in that film, Beautiful, Beautiful. And then it, uh, the following year, um, on a school trip to London, I went to the Hayward Gallery and I saw the Bill Brandt exhibition. So if Bruce Davidson was about what we'd now think of as social engagement, using photography as a tool of, of for getting access to people and to hearing their stories and meeting them, um, Bill Brandt really taught me about how a camera could be used as a tool, like a passport, to slip between the social classes. And um, I was very, you know, I'd been brought up in the south of England. I'd been brought up pretty in a pretty sheltered way. I only knew, you know, I went to an all-boys school. I'm, 
only knew men. I didn't know girls. I didn't know. I'd never met anybody who was from a different racial background. Um, I was hugely curious about the world around me, um, and it was 1970. You know, uh, we 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 were living the count the counterculture was going on on someone else's TV, and uh, and I, and um, you know there was Hendrix and the Who and and um, Bob Dylan and um, and Ken Kesey and um, all these radicals doing interesting things, and. Um, we had Ray Gosling on the radio, who I loved on Radio Four, and I, I heard all these things peripherally. Um, for a long time, we hadn't had a telly at home, but you know, um, you, it, it was in the air. The Beatles were making the White Album and all of that, and um, it was just, it was just. Um, a way I could see, I could see a way of being able to maybe live differently um, and influenced by the counterculture and trying to understand the world around me. Photography was going to be the tool for doing that. So how easy was it then to go to this college? It was hard because there was only one course that was a degree programme which was a, basically pretty scientific and it was at the um, uh, Regent Street's Polytechnic in London and I applied and they turned me down and then the only place that would take me because I didn't have physics O level it was regarded that physics O level was a, a, a really important exam to pass if you were going to do photography because you needed to understand you know um, lenses and um, we, yeah um, the science, the science of cameras, uh, and Manchester Polytechnic let me in, and um, it let in a lot of us that were kind of misfits who only, only had one A level or didn't have the right exams, because they were new. They were an amalgamation of um, FE and further education and um, tech colleges and. Uh, that all had been teacher training colleges and science and engineering yeah. courses that had been pulled together um, around the art school and turned into the polytechnic. And so half our teachers were kind of slightly arty types and the other half were scientists who wore lab coats and um, wanted us to measure the um, characteristic curves of emulsions and make our own cameras and uh, taught us about... Um, uh, um, Oh, the difference between illumination and brightness and uh, how we could measure those things um, in lumens. So you, you had that, which is kind of, um, I guess, strange, the idea that you need physics A-level, but I, I can understand that if you, the way the progression happened with cameras especially, because they weren't necessarily ubiquitous, were they? I mean, they, they were, I guess I lived at a time when I was growing up and I got into photography because it was very cheap and very kind of everywhere. You know, you go to any shop and if they sold little 110 cameras with a terrible cartridge, you look back and you think, you know, that no wonder the prints are all <laughs> the negative, the lenses and all that. But it was there and it was, it was a thing. It was photography. Whereas, like you said, you were in, kind of um, inspired by people who, it was real cameras. It was kind of real. 
I say large scale photography. I know that a lot of the guys they use like rangefinders or SLRs, but at the same time, they weren't. It wasn't like it is today. So, because you had that, then that grounded. Do you think that actually gives you a better understanding? of how to take a photo of what a good photo looks like uh not really um uh, i think what made the difference to me at art school was um the other people who were also students at the same time i was just very fortunate to be in a little gang of people who were equally ambitious and curious and um so, you know, Brian Griffin and Martin Parr, Kate Meller, Charlie Meacham, Pete Fraser, they were all either in the same year as me or one ahead or one behind. And we used to meet at... Um, Brian Griffin had a flat in Moss Side, on the corner of Alexander Road. Um, and I live opposite him above a chip shop. Um, and... On Saturdays afternoons, my girlfriend at the time, Shireen, used to make these curries. And we'd take them over to Brian's and then Martin and and Charlie and, and um, one or two others, Kate. And Brian and I would sit down and we'd try and work out what was going on in photography because there was no we had no teaching about contemporary photographic practice we were taught about um you know how to it was basically a commercial photography course and they're trying to teach us how to work in a studio and the route for us was would have been through being an assistant in a maybe in a london studio and then working our way up and and um we were actually not particularly interested in that route the group of us uh, martin and i were very determined that documentary was in the area that we wanted to work in. And so we used to meet and we'd get stuff, Creative Camera Magazine, we'd get um, uh, old uh, albums, Bill Jay's edited editions of album. Um, and there was, a, there was a, a, a weekly photographic newspaper called Photo News Weekly or something. I seem to remember it was printed on yellow paper. Anyway, we used to get all this stuff. And we used to try and make sense of what contemporary practice was in photography. And then we'd set ourselves tasks. And we'd go off and, you know, I'd go off and do, I don't know, Nutsford May Day Festival. And uh, Martin would go off to Bellevue Pleasure Park. And Brian would go off to the ballroom dancing in Blackpool or something. And then we'd come back and then the group of us would judge, have a judging of each other's photographs. And we'd have, and, Brian, and, and there's a guy called John Greenwood, who was a sculptor who made a trophy for us. And uh, yeah, and we, we used to set each other things to do. And um, that was where we really learned. That was the first time I came across photographers like um, Diane Arbus and um, uh, I don't know, Lee Friedlander, Gary Winogrand. I mean, the Americans, yeah, the Americans always led the field, um, I think largely because there was a, 
something to do with numbers, you know. If you've got 0.3% of the population who are mildly interested in photography in America, I don't know what that, you know, it equates to. You know, if you publish a book, then maybe you'll sell a thousand copies of it. And if you sell a thousand copies of a book that's $20 or whatever, you know, yeah. you've got enough money to do the book. Whereas in Britain, if it's the same ratio, you haven't got enough money to do the book. <laughs> so, you know, and there weren't photography books really because the, the printing in Britain was incredibly poor. And, you know, the first photography books that were being published in Britain were being published, were being printed in America by Rappaport Printing in uh, um, uh, Massachusetts, I think it was. So uh, Rochester, yeah, wherever anyway. Um, yeah, so, yes, we did have good tutors, uh, you know, Alan Murgatroyd, John Fisher, Roger Beecroft, Jack Tate kind of held it all together as the head of the school. But it, and, and, uh, but it, but they were people who were kind of steering us in a commercial photography direction in the studio. And this sort of little group of us getting together and seriously trying to, uh, you know, interrogate contemporary photographic practice was where I learned the most. Um, and we taught each other. One thing that struck me when I saw the the Salford photos, June Street, that which you and Martin Parr collaborated on, and they are they're a series of photos of, of families sitting in their in their front room, the living room, I guess, because it's their they're the back to back on the terraces the two up two down they felt like like almost like they they felt classical well they are a typology you know they're photographed into the room in the same direction and so you um well that's not quite true they were shot in two different directions sometimes towards the window and sometimes um to um into the house as it were but they were always grouped around their sofa or whatever furniture in the front room um the the reason martin and i worked together on two projects and mainly it was because i had a car <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and so you know he always wanted a lift and we were friends you know we were chums and we were also misfits you know, on that martin they tried to get rid of him at the end of the first year it's well documented and he alan murgatroyd came to his rescue um and managed to keep him in on the course. I'd been ill. I had glandular fever uh, in my um, in my second year, and missed a great chunk of it um, from about uh, what January through to uh, I think even as far as April or May. Several months. I was in hospital for some of the time, and um, so I was in a in a hurry to kind of catch up. And Martin was the, you know, quite anarchic, difficult to teach. But we hit it off because uh, we both had the same ambition, which was to shoot documentary pictures outside and not be in the studio. And we used to do things together, um, one of which was that we went to a Granada TV open day. And Granada had opened up their studio to show off the new Coronation Street set, which was an outdoor set. So in other words, you could walk into yeah. their back lot and there was a, a street. It was all differently sized and bits of it could be moved so you could get cameras inside. 
but basically it was the exteriors. And this was, to us, quite funny, because it was an idealised form of something that was supposed to be depicting everyday life. And yet you only had to walk a quarter of a mile down the road into Salford from Key Street, where the Granada Street Granada Studios were, and you could see these buildings all being pulled down. The Rover's Return was actually a pub not very far from the Granada Studios, and it was derelict at that time. It had closed down in 1972, and it was there. It was, um, but it it was a closed down pub with a you know there's still the writing on on the wall. Um, and we asked around. We walked around there and tried to find a street that had been used, that was still lived in, but had been used by the filmmakers making Coronation Street. And we found June Street, which was perfect. It was a perfect street, exactly as those streets had always been, cobbles. Every house was lived in. It was scheduled for demolition. They were all about to move out. And um, we, I wrote a letter, I drafted a letter, and we, I don't know whether we typed it or whether it was handwritten. I've only got the draft of it. I, the actual thing doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we posted this through the door letterboxes and then nobody was very enthusiastic. And, um, and then eventually one woman, old love, said, OK, yes, I'd like to have a picture taken. And we borrowed the Hasselblad, which was a studio camera, and I'm really glad we did. We had to really twist the arms of the technicians to lend it to us because it was, wasn't was never supposed to go out of the building. And we borrowed this beautiful Hasselblad with, I think, a 40-millimeter lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, and a tripod, obviously, and we took a light bulb, a very bright um, studio light bulb, which we put into people's light bulb in the middle of the room. There was always a light bulb in the middle of the room. And we and we also took some 50 pences with us to put into people's light, because they mostly had electricity meters, <laughs> so you needed to feed their meter to keep the light going. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so she had a picture done, and obviously she showed it to the neighbors, and then the neighbors thought, oh, that would be nice, you know, and it's free and everything. So gradually during that period, which is just after... Um, uh, Christmas in the period between Christmas and Easter in 1972 uh, so I've got uh, sorry not I'm completely wrong between Christmas and Easter in 1973 because in Christmas and Easter 1972 I was ill um, 1973 we um, we we uh, worked our way down the street and photographed people and built that set of pictures up. The idea was, I think we both had slightly different ideas. He, Martin was fascinated by the wallpaper and the sort of surreal nature of um, the things people had, the tights hanging over the, drying over the fireplace, the dogs. and the, In one picture, there's a tortoise. Um, uh, I was just, I like the way you talk about them as being sort of, Gainsborough classics. Um, I was trying to kind of dignify the ordinary, you know. Um, I've always had this thing that media is top down. It's all and the attention is always wrong. Media points itself in the wrong direction. It's like at the moment we're living through a massive um, existential crisis in in the meaning of who we are as British, and the radio is and the television is just full of 
you know, portrait, uh, radio portrait and interviews with the, is it 12 now, candidates for the leadership yeah, of the Tory party. Yeah. You know, it's like we're all looking in the wrong direction all the time. And um, it was, I've always felt that about the media. And, I, and we were, you know, we were part of that post-counterculture generation who were, look, who were trying to do everything alternatively. The world word was alternative. There was a wonderful Bible we had, which was called Alternative England and Wales, which, was, which taught you how to be a hippie and a head and, a, and somebody who could do things differently and in a way that engaged with communities and didn't exploit people and enabled you to live the, you know, the, a freer and different kind of a life. And, and I bought all that very much. I think Martin was less into all that but I did buy that and I also you know we were trying to make alternative ways of 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 making media and reaching an audience with it and at the same time I had had my idea for the free photographic omnibus which we can talk about a bit more in a while but at that point I needed publicity for it I needed to raise money for it <clears throat> and I was knocking on the doors of TV producers and radio producers and newspaper editors, well, reporters, um, trying to get attention for my bus project. And I bumped into a woman called uh, Linda McDougall at the BBC in Manchester. And um, I said to her, you know, I'm trying to do this bus project. And she said, well, that's all very well, but what are you doing now? And I said, well, me and my mate Martin are photographing everybody in the street in Salford. And she said, I'd love to come down with you. So she recorded everybody in that street talking about their fears and worries about moving house and the fact that the, the houses were going to be demolished and they'd be re, re, you know, reallocated homes in probably in flats and so on. And there was a lot of anxiety around that. And we made a, I don't know how long it was, a three-minute item for Look North, and it went out on the BBC evening magazine programme um, as a set of still pictures with the voiceovers of um, of the people in the pictures talking about their fears and worries about moving. And, um, you know, I thought it was just brilliant. There we were, a couple of students who, you know, who never published anything. And suddenly here we were reaching a massive audience in Manchester. Um, with this set of pictures. Um, I don't have, it was before the days of video recorders, so I don't have a recording of that. I do have the script of it, so I know what the programme was like. I was going to say that there's very, videotape was very valuable then, wasn't it? And you've got that, that you know, case of all the shows from the BBC that were taped over. That's right, but, but uh, it, yes, they, they went out, it went out live, so it was kind of stitched together live. So if you hadn't actually recorded the live programme, you wouldn't have, wouldn't have it. Um, and there were no recorders available at that time. I mean, no, you know, later on in the 80s, a decade later, um, you had, you know, VHS recorders, but they, were, they weren't, hadn't been invented. But I, I just loved it that... Um, you had this sort of common culture of people sitting around their tellies while they're having their tea and watching themselves, as it were. And instead of watching, you know, um, politicians. So you said about what Martin, you think you think Martin liked about them, got out of them, yeah. which is the, 
the, the minutiae of the the people's existence, the, you know, the, the, the clothes they wore, the, the wallpaper, yeah. which are you know there's just amazing wallpapers in there and the and carpets, the budgies and the little <laughs> yeah. strange things yeah. on the wall. Um, but for for you, what was it? What what was the the? I'm obviously from a documentary point of view. You want to document them, but is it about telling their story? Yeah, I'm always interested in, in engaging with people and hearing their story. Yeah, and I loved it that that Linda could join us and you know hear the stories. So the pictures were animated with the sound. I just loved that combination of pictures. And but don't sound you think together. those pictures tell a story even without that sound? They do, definitely. They do. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, and you know I don't have the sound um, to go with them anymore. I did revisit it for a radio documentary with the BBC in 1996, um, where I revisited a lot of the things that I'd photographed as a younger man. Um, a half-hour radio documentary called Living Like This, edited by, uh, produced by Mark Berman and um, uh, uh, my mate Alan, who's... I've worked with a lot over Alan Dean. I've worked with a lot over the years, one way or another. He's always been a collaborator. And um, yeah, the two of us, uh, me and Alan, um, went back and found one of the families that we'd photographed who'd moved into, uh, they'd moved out of, I mean, June Street was completely demolished. And it wasn't just that the houses were demolished, the, the street map was ripped up. We couldn't even find where it was anymore. If, if um, Alan Craddock, who'd lived there, hadn't, taken us back to where it was we'd never have found it um yeah but we um it was a gated community for sheltered accommodation that was there it's very funny lots of old people who remembered june street you know <laughs> and they're standing oh in the irony place yeah 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 but anyway um it was uh yeah i i've always liked sound do, as do well you, as pictures do you feel sentimental about these things I don't feel sentimental. I feel glad that we did it because no one else did it. I mean, you know, all of these northern, all the sort of so-called cliches of northern housing, back-to-back houses, nobody just photographed people sitting in their living rooms. They often, mm. I mean, my a photographer whose work I really, really like is Nick Hedges, who'd been photographing in the streets around there, around that same time. But he was photographing all the houses that had, you know, the plaster falling from the ceiling and water coming through in buckets and children, you know, dirty and hungry, you know, for the shelter campaign. And these things were next to each other. You know, there were some streets that were kind of house proud and, you know, they kept them in good order, even though the, the fabric of the building was collapsing around them. They were, they were wallpapering the walls every year and uh, keeping the front doorstep clean. And two streets away... You'd have people living in squats in appalling conditions, you know. Um, that's how it was. Uh, but nobody was photographing the house proud, old-style, old working-class front rooms. And nobody did, apart from us. And now that set of pictures, it's, you know, it's being published all the time. It's at the Arl Photography Festival this summer. and There's a book being built around um, British working-class houses and homes. And, um, and an exhibition of, and that, that set of pictures is part of that project. It's ironic that millions of people tune into Coronation Street every night. Yes, yeah, exactly. And it's the kind of lie of um, mass media 
against what's actually happening on the ground. And I was always much more interested in what was happening on the ground. And I've always been very mistrustful of big media, as I call it, even though I've collaborated with it a lot. You know, I've done a lot of things with the BBC. I worked there for um, in Cardiff for four or five years. I worked at Granada TV in Manchester for two years, presenting programmes and stuff. But... Um, and researching them, but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't build a career. I didn't want to build a career in mainstream media because I don't like it. Shtick in the in the long run, I don't like it. You bought into the alternative. I bought into the alternative. Yeah. So how does how does this um, no, this isn't necessarily connected with your work, oh. but the kind of the punk movement, that kind of um, DIY. Yeah. Because obviously your bus was kind of before that. Yeah. You, you were doing it yourself before yeah, that, but yeah. were you were you kind of did you feel an urge to document that or? Well, the thing about the bus was it grew out of a project that I did in Moss Side even before the June Street pictures. In Moss Side in 1972, was living across the road from houses that were being demolished. As I cycled to work to the college every day. A new bit of a street had been pulled down or new streets were closed off or bulldozers were in different streets and they were literally demolishing it around us. And you saw whole communities being completely destroyed. And Mossside was a very vibrant place. You know, it had been the, it, the community that had built there before I arrived was largely Irish. A lot of Irish people have been there. But then the, the African-Caribbean families started arriving and you had this wonderful cultural mix, and then loads of uh, Indians and Pakistanis. Um, so it was for me, who you know, grown up in the south of England in a you know all white, all boys environment. Suddenly, I'm in the middle of this fantastic sort of stimulating place, and yet it's all being demolished all around. And I thought, how could I? How can I? How should I respond to this? I mean, I was 20 years old, you know. I'm a boy, really. Um, and then one of my tutors showed me Irving Penn's Worlds in a Small Room, which was, you know, he's a high-end fashion photographer. And he went round the world with this sort of portable tent uh, that was a studio, and then he put people into it, photographed them. And, uh, it's you know, it's uh, culturally seen now as being... Um, uh, dodgy as a dodgy piece of work because it's very you know sort of white white man fashion guru um, goes and photographs natives you know and um, puts them into a sort of studio and it's like cultural appropriation and all of that um, but at the time it was I'd never seen anything like it and I didn't it wasn't the fashion element but it was the idea that you could create a studio in the place where you wanted to tell a story. So I rented, a, you know, we had grants and, and um, a tuition fees were paid. Um, so it's not like being a student now. And if you if you saved your pennies, which I did, and I'd also, um, uh, that summer I worked at Butlins and, and raised some money as well and things like that. If you, if you could get a job and so on in the holidays, you could, you could I rented a shop in Moss Side, you know. I mean, it wasn't. I didn't pay very much for it. It was about to be demolished itself. It was tiny, as a little barber's shop. I rented this shop, and and began running free studio there. Um, I wasn't a very good studio photographer, but uh, I love those pictures. Um, 
and they're on the internet and people now and you know I've made got in touch with quite a lot of people who are in those there's, pictures who've grown up quite a few of those pictures that aren't taken in the studio though I, I took, yeah there. well what happened was that um, I, I would take pictures in the studio on a Saturday and then the following week I'd get people would come and collect them um, but then they don't we get chatting you know and they'd say oh would you come and photograph you know we're having a family christening or something um, or can you photograph my daughter and have a little friend or whatever and you know you go to wherever that was and take the pictures outside as well so it's a wonderful way by being in the middle of the community you learned another story about it that um that i could also photograph and um so it was i loved that studio way of working and and i just thought i could put this on wheels if i could put this on wheels and i kept thinking of cliff richard in summer holiday you know do 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 you know cliff and his pals in a double decker bus traveling around all converted and uh, if that was a studio and there were loads of buses um you know the who magic bus too much magic bus live at leeds great album i want it i want it um and then there was um there was you know ken kesey and the merry pranksters driving across america in bus with further written on the destination board trying to get people to take lsd and um you know there were buses in trundling in my head and um uh and i thought i'll get one myself so i spent most of my final year apart from the june street pictures i spent most of my final year doing a massive what we now call crowdfunding project but raising money so i could buy a bus and set off around england running free portrait sessions and then following up with the people who I'd photographed and on stories that they told me of things that were happening away from the bus. So I could just arrive in a town and suddenly you've got, you know, something's happening, you're making something happen, it's slightly performative, you've got to get out there and be jolly and meet people and point the camera at them, take their picture and then you've got to arrange to get it back to them and then when they come and collect it the next day or whenever, um, uh, you get into conversations with them, they tell you stuff, and you can go off and photograph other things. But they're, they're not actually on the bus, are there? There's no, there's no studio backdrop. These no, originally I had hoped I'd be able to do that, have the studio on the bus. But actually this, the bus was a gallery, and all the pictures were in the windows of the bus, and I lived in the bus. and um, So it was a thing, and it said, have your picture taken you know, for free, and on it and so people used to just come and say what's all this about then you know what's the con here and all of that and you'd get chatting to them and then they'd have their picture taken so let's just uh, let's just go a bit nerdy so what what equipment were you using then okay well i used um i would love to have taken the college hasselblad <laughs> but you know they were way beyond what, what i could afford or what i could raise money for um i had an old roliflex it was a roly no it was a roly flex yes but it was the lower end that i can't remember what all the models were it was a roly flex but it had um uh it was the not the top end tessar lens it was a slightly less good one and it was quite old and the lens was quite scratched so a lot of those pictures are quite soft but they're still square format aren't they square format yeah. medium format so you got a big negative it's and you, yeah so you could blow it up quite big and you got quite nice quality yeah twin lens reflex very 
convivial camera because you could, mostly with a camera, you put it up to your face. And I'm very tall, so I'm then looking down at people, so it's sort of patronising. Mm. And also you're not looking at them, you're not looking in their eye, you're looking through a lens at them, you become a sort of machine. And I was never any really good working that way for portraits. But a, but the Rodiflex is a lovely camera because you have it round your waist and you look down into it. And then you look up and you engage with the person that you're photographing. And then you look down into it again. And it's back to front, the picture's back to front. So, you know, you're twiddling the focus knob and it's just a lovely thing. And then you're looking up and you're engaging with the person. And I love that sense of engagement. And then you'd say, maybe look in the lens. And I only took one picture. I never took one. I didn't have enough money for film and paper and you stuff. You get 12 out of there, 12 out of a roll. You get, so you get 12 pictures. And also, often there are little groups of pairs or, or three people, or in one case, five people. And you just made five prints from the same negative rather than having five different negatives to print from. So, And I had a dark room upstairs on the bus. And I used to sit up at night in the back there, um, sitting in this sort of this tiny dark room, making these um, yeah little prints. Depending how much money I had, sometimes the prints were quite small. Sometimes they were up to ten eight or maybe two on a piece of ten eight paper. And then I laid them. I washed them. Washing was always a problem because really you should wash. In running water under running water and i usually just had a bucket you know. i used to have a couple of buckets I, it always, it's always raining so i'd always have buckets catching rain because they had these lovely gutters on the edge of the bus and you could put a bucket underneath it and if it was raining it would fill up in you know quite quickly and so i always had buckets of water and uh yeah i was always going into public toilets with big you know <laughs> get, i can't remember what, how big they were five gallon were they or something water tanks which i'd have to fill up and uh, yeah and filling stations petrol stations i'd be filling up with water you know and, uh, yeah um it was a big hassle the bus a massive hassle and it took me a long while to get to make it work properly get permission it was, it was before mobile phones and you had to do all the org you'd be ringing up i used to organize it six weeks in advance so wherever i was i'd be thinking six weeks in advance because you had to get in touch with the town clerk of a town you'd never been to, find out where would be a good site to put the bus, get permission from them, you know, or argue that you didn't have any money to pay to do this, that you weren't trading, you know, that it was a documentary project, da-da-da-da-da. And, um, yeah, all of it in public phone boxes, you know. Uh, I didn't have an address. Uh, I had a. I was an, a fellow of the Institute of Advanced Studies at Manchester Polytechnic, which is a kind of postgraduate honorary post. There was no no money changed hands, but I had access to the dark room, so I could go every six. Every, I was on the road. I divided everything into two month slots. I was on the road for whatever it was, six weeks. Um, forgive me if I've got the numbers wrong on this, but it was roughly this: six weeks on the road, and then two weeks back in Manchester making an exhibition two copies of the exhibition. One went in the wall, in the windows of the bus, and the other was given to whoever had been helping me do the project in the place I'd just come from, usually an arts association. Um, many of those exhibitions have disappeared. 
There are two that I know of that have still exist. One of them is in the care of the side gallery in Newcastle, and the other is in Fakenham Public Library in Norfolk. Uh, anybody who knows any of the others, I'd love to see them again. I suspect Fakenham Public Library is one of those libraries that never throws anything away. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Um, the Rolleiflex actually that that was the first camera, first medium format camera I used at college. Um, it's a lovely camera, and it, yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was quite. They were quite old. Yeah, but were. it was such a. It kind of, well, it just felt like it was easy to use. Yeah, and I got some absolutely cracking shots. Yeah, um, they were all portraits, <laughs> enough, <laughs> because uh, you know that's. I mean, that's what I love about your work. It's because it's it's. I'm always drawn to work that I wish I'd done. If that makes sense, you know whether yeah, it's. Uh, no, that's understandable. And I do that with like illustrations or, or paintings or whatever. Mm. It's always the people that do things like I would wish I'd done them, but they do them much better. Yeah. But I always think, oh, that's really good. That is. <laughs> Obviously, you get kind of you're going to get lumped in with Martin Parr because you kind of started off together, and he's gone on to be this kind of um, shortcut, I guess. It's this shorthand for a certain kind of imagery. But it's interesting what you say about what he was interested in even in the June Street images, because that you can see that running through all his, the most popular of his work or the most used of his work. And when I look at something like National Portraits and when I first saw it um, 20 odd years ago, whatever it was, when it were kind of had a resurgence, it struck me this is kind of, there's a much purer form here. There's a, I don't know whether it's less judgment because it's hard to be judgmental in a photo, but there seems to be of the moment of yours under-processed almost. It's almost like the well, I think the, the I think the main, the main difference between Martin and my work is that he and I have a different approach. His, his approach is to identify everybody as a type. So he'd say, okay, I'm interested in um, nationalism at the moment because of Brexit. So where can I see nationalism on display in a way that is clearer and brighter than anywhere else in Britain? So he then goes and researches it and discovers that there's a group of people who meet in, I can't remember where it is, Dudley or somewhere in the West Midlands, every, I can't even remember when it is, but it's St George's Day, I suppose it is, yeah. Um, and they they celebrate Englishness and they wave the you know, red and white flag of St George and it's everywhere out of everybody's windows on their cars and there's this massive celebration. And he'll he'll go and photograph that, you know, maybe three or four years running and get out of it, you know, a handful of pictures which identifies this type of behaviour. And I admire that and it's also, he's been extraordinarily successful doing it and he's made a lot of money doing it and... Um, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge him any of that. He's he's a very clever man, and very a brilliant photographer. But my approach is different. That's all. My approach is that I I believe in treating people as individuals, not as types. Um, and that's the difference. You know, he's not really interested in the particularity of an individual story within the type that he's identified. Whereas I'm not interested in whether somebody fits to be a type or not. I'm interested in listening to, to strangers. I like just this wonderful, the thing about the bus was it's fabulous serendipity that you'd meet strangers every day who'd tell you stuff. 
and pose for their picture. And I love the fact that we are all so different, so very different. And the idea of trying to trap people into being a type is repulsive to me. And I don't, that's not what my work's ever been about. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I never, I don't make money. <laughs> and for a lot of my life, I've never thought of myself as successful. So who's to say that I'm, I'm right? But that's the, you know, all I can say is that's the thing that is strongest in me about my work. That my strongest impulse is to treat people as individuals. You know, that body of work would have remained in the albums of the people who bothered to come and collect their photograph from the bus and that and it would and that's where those pictures the portraits that I gave away um would have stayed if it hadn't been for Val Williams the curator um uh, academic and scholar who um in uh, the 1990s so sort of 20 years after 25 years after I did the, well, I, the bus project was 73 and 74. Most of the pictures, the portraits are 74. Um, and in, then in the late 90s, yes, so 25 years later, um, Val put that National Portraits exhibition together from going through my negatives. And, you know, I edited out, I can't remember how many it was, 150 pictures or something and she edited 40 or so from those um, and that became the National Portraits exhibition and we had a disagreement not a not a we didn't fall out um, as friends or anything but um, she saw them as being representative types and wrote about that and I said I don't like that bar I don't see them as being representative types I, I'm interested in them as individuals and it spurred me to go and find people again. And by then I was teaching in a journalism school. I was working in Cardiff at, at the, uh, you know, the posh university, which has a, uh, this um, long established journalism school set up by Tom Hopkinson, the former editor of Picture Post, and mostly training postgrads. And I went to work there, uh, initially teaching photojournalism, but I quickly became involved with developing uh, the tools of new media as the digital age arrived um, and uh, Val did that exhibition and that book National Portraits and uh, 97 as you rightly say and I was so curious to find out what had happened to those people that I used my connections within the newspaper industry and how, you know, understanding how the newspaper industry worked, works or worked then anyway, to go back and find some of those people again. Because obviously I didn't have addresses. They just came back to the bus and um, collected their print or not. So I just had portraits, no names, nothing, you know. Um, and I thought I'd choose three towns that might have some kind of, um, uh, community built around industry or whatever where the people might not have left might still be there and I picked um, the three I chose were Barrow in Furness up on the northwest coast Hartlepool on the northeast coast and Southampton in the middle of the south so a sort of triangle three towns and uh, 
I worked them one at a time and I uh, got the, the to begin with I went off on my own steam to Barrow in Furness but um, I uh, Val sold the story of the bus portraits to the Guardian and they paid a thousand quid to me and that was enough to fund going back to Barrow in Furness and working with the local newspaper there over one summer and tracking people down and going on trips back to Barrow. I was living in South Wales. That um, I was living here actually in Monmouth by that time. We'd been living in Newport for um, 10 or 11 years before that. Yeah, so driving from here up to Barrow in Furness, you know, getting there and, and organising to photograph people again. And... Um, that little body of work started to build and I was able to sell it as a radio documentary and that raised a bit another thousand pounds. I went back to Hartlepool and that's when I worked with Alan Dean and he came and did a lot of audio recordings with me. So we were gradually starting to build up the audio of meeting these people again and hearing their stories and re-photographing them. And then uh, Granta, the... Um, literary magazine which also has photo, photo spreads did a whole chapter 40 pages of my pictures and the stories the people talking about what had happened over the 25 years i put an exhibition together that started to tour on the continent in different places and in ireland um, and then the grantor paid enough money to go to southampton and so it built like that and each time working with the local newspaper, each time persuading the local newspaper to run a big feature with lots of little pictures, and then people identifying themselves or other people, and then phoning into the newspaper and building a list, and then we organised the day when people could come and have be re-photographed. Um, yeah, so it was uh, working at you know at local newspaper level, and re-meeting people again and photographing them, and that became the book The Bus which was published in 2001. And that's the story of that journey, um, finding people again and proving to Val that I didn't, you know, that to me, the thing that was really exciting was how people's lives had panned out and who they were and everything and how, it, how difficult it is to pin people down to being types or representative of anything other than the experience of being them. And I love it when people talk freely um, about who they are and what their experiences have been and uh, yeah so I worked a lot on the writing at that time working the strategy for how to how to bring these stories together in a way that would be interesting to an audience and um, yeah so I developed a strategy for recording people and then rewriting it all because oral histories are really boring when they're written down all the ums and ahs and so on i mean it's great for museums and libraries and so on but for storytelling you've got to we all need our editors so i became a kind of editor for these stories and i'd you know like somebody would be talking about five or six things at the same time all mixed up about their relationships their work their their ambitions, their disappointments, and so on. And they'd all be mixed up. And I'd break those down. So I'd have a section on relationships and a section on ambition. And I'd rewrite the, the whole thing as a narrative. And I'd give it, give it back to them. 
Well, at different times, I've worked in different ways. I've tried, you know, I've developed this way of trying to tell people stories. But the way it's finally evolved, the way I work now, although I've more or less stopped working now, but the way I have been working up until 2015, is that I give that version back to people and say, okay, what do you recognize about yourself in here? And, you know, use the red pen and change it any way you like. And people then start, we then start to collaborate on this written piece. The people in the pictures re, you know, retelling their lives. And we eventually arrive at something we both can agree on and that becomes the thing that we publish. And, um, yeah, so that's how I've, I've been working. And the, the, I've got a new book coming out in, uh, in October this year. Um, all my archive of all my life's work, not just June Street and the Free Photographic Omnibus, and before that, the Moss Side Free, free Shop. Um, but all my work as artist in residence in Pendle in Lancashire, and all my subsequent work as in documentary, um, is all is one forms an archive, which has now been acquired by the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. And um, in the autumn, they're published. They're celebrating that with an exhibition and uh, a new book. And um, there are, there is, is there more than one? There's certainly one unpublished interview in that book, which is one of the first people I photographed in Moss Side, um, a guy called Neville Davis. Um, uh, I've, he, I, I found him again through the internet. He found me, we found each other through the internet. And I've made a little film and a, and a, re, and met him again. And he tells the story of his life um, in between the period when I photographed him and now, um, and that appears in the, in the new book. So yeah, I'm, I've still been that. You know, that those are the things that fascinate me. Is the is the passage of time, the times through which we've lived. Okay, so you were born nineteen fifty ish, fifty two, fifty two. So do you think? Given the, the rise of digital media, given the rise of being able to do broadcast quality recordings with a couple of microphones, um, 4K recordings on a GoPro, you know, these tiny little devices now, is there a bit of you that wishes that actually, if you'd have come along 20 years later, if you'd have been born maybe in the 70s, or you would have been able to achieve a purer form of what you wanted to do? Yeah, well, this, it, um, I love the whole new thing the whole new digital age is you know i've just embraced it i i love it and i love the fact that everybody can make pictures and do recordings now um in the at the turn of the century and through the first five or six years of the noughties i developed a project that was an extension of the bus really it was called capture whales I was living, I am and was then living in Wales. I was working at, in the university in the journalism school and I was researching new forms of media production and I'd been to America doing research and um, I pitched, or me and my 
boss at the university, Ian Hargreaves, pitched to the BBC an idea that we could uh, teach um, members of what the BBC called members of the audience, but you know, us, I could teach my fellow man and woman how to make two minutes of TV based on their own collection of photographs, um, talking about their own lives. Um, and they they bought it, and for six years we made we went round in a van. Me, I, they they helped me build a team, funded it. I went on secondment to the BBC from the university, and we had a white Mercedes van, and it was full of laptop computers, and we drove round Wales, um, teaching people how to make two minutes of TV. Um, making what we call digital stories which was a, a form a form media form that i borrowed from a group of guys working in uh, california um, who actually came over and helped us uh, get going joe lambert his name was and the wonderful dana winslow actually the third look him up on youtube and play his lovely films um uh, yeah, he's a he was a huge influence as much as as much as Bruce Davidson had been to me. The photographer Bruce Davidson had been when I was a schoolboy and I saw beautiful, beautiful Dana. When I saw Dana Winslow Ashley's little films, you know, I, I wanted to go and study with him and see how he did it. Um, and so yeah, in the early days, this is before YouTube, before smartphones. But in the early days of the new digital equipment where you could make and produce a piece of TV on the kitchen table, that really excited me. And um, yeah, so we had a great time traveling around Wales making those films. And I love them. I absolutely love them. You can't see them anywhere. It's one of those projects the BBC made and then it's all was shelved and it sits there somewhere. It, we, there is a duplicate set um, of 600 of the films um, in the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth. Um, I sneaked a few into the British Library in London and there's, gonna, there's quite a lot in my own archive um, in, in the Bodleian. So yeah, hopefully one day there'll be a knock at the door and there'll be some eagle, fresh-faced, TV researcher who comes and sees me and says, now tell me about digital stories, Daniel. What was that all about? Um, but of course, then it was new. And now, 20 years later, everybody's carrying around the, the tools of digital production in their smartphone, in their pocket. I think we've reached a strange point where the ability, the sorry, the, um, the technology, what the technology can do outstrips our ability to do it well. I do think, you think we've only just reached that point? Um, no, I think we reached it probably, uh, probably seven or eight years ago. Really, with the with the once you could record and edit video in a smartphone, yeah, that at that point. So people are. I mean, we what what I always think of <coughs> for the 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 broadcasting, publishing, all of writing something, researching something, making something, producing it and publishing it to an audience is a kind of privilege to be able to do that. And the tradition of publishing 
is that there's a peer group, you know, there's mm. a who who help you edit it. You know, there are copy editors, there's there's designers, there's uh, you know, in print in, in publishing, there's a, there's an editor who's who who you know proves everything before it goes to press. There's um he curates it all for you. Yes, exactly. And and in television there's producers and researchers and executive producers and all kinds of people who are involved in the making of the thing. Um and so it it is a kind of privilege to work in that collaborative way and it's an honor to be uh, to to have the cheek to demand other people's attention. And I think we've reached the point now where it's so easy to get some. It's so easy to publish that we don't really think about the con, the considered narrative that we're making. I, I'm a great believer in the considered narrative, and I'm a and I'm a hoarder of uh, media forms, you know, uh, forms that work for reaching an audience. Okay, so that, I, I take on board what you say, um, and then I'm going to bring it back to photography. Yeah. Because I kind of see a parallel there. You've got people who are in the same way that you went to school to do photography. Yeah. You had a, a desire to document things. Yeah. And then merely 10 years after you'd started your documenting, there was the rise of, of like I said before, these very simple cameras that everybody had. And instead of having to borrow a Hasselblad from the college, now you could get a very cheap... Um, it was certainly incredibly cheap, 110 or 126, little cartridge system. Or if you had a bit more money, you could buy a rangefinder. Um, and then there was this huge kind of mushrooming of photography where people kind of took photos, but they didn't consider them, they wouldn't certainly put them on a par with published photos because there was nowhere publishing them. You had them in your hand, your holiday snaps from a school trip or kids took them there. You know, everyone had a camera. Um, but it, now it seems to me it's the same thing happens now but instead of them not being able to put them anywhere they now put them in the same place same media space as things that have been produced by people who have been trained in it or have things curated for them yeah, by a peer yeah, group yeah. so you can i mean the argument there is i guess that you have that incredible now freedom to to to, to put work out there but then who does curate it yes i think there's a problem over um at the moment over how how best to reach an audience with serious work you know like when i lived on my bus and i was putting in my whatever it is you know thousand hours of working out how to do it the first six months i didn't really crack it it was only when i got to i think portsmouth or somewhere like that or oxford that the that the pictures started to work um and then you know, I, I developed a way of being able to um, do, do them more efficiently and produce better quality pictures. And I think all projects uh, require that kind of um, intense um, relationship with the production process. Like being a photographer, I've never ever made good pictures when I go out with someone else, when you go into a, a strange community and meet strangers, you've got to be on your own. You know, you've got to be exposed. You've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be all of that. It's got to be a bit, it's, it feels a bit dangerous sometimes. Um, and I, I mean, somebody told me once that 
I mean, I've always thought of myself as rather a cowardly type kind of person in that I always back off if there's any violence going on. And I'm, and I'm um, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't imagine volunteering to join the army or something like that. Um, but somebody said to me that the bus project was a very brave project because I was, I was exposed in that you're a complete stranger and there you are plonking yourself in the middle of someone's community. So what I'm saying is there's, a, there's an intensity to making work of this, of the kind of quality that I've been trying to do. And I think that's shared by all people who do projects seriously. I think there are a lot of people who think that photography is just about the camera or just about pressing the button and they haven't thought through what their work is about sufficiently. And what I think, you know, what I, I, I love about the modern world is that it is possible for people to build communities of interest using social media where they can, where they can um, you know, test each other out, like me and Brian and Martin and, and, uh, and Charlie Meacham and Kate and, uh, and Jackie Ward, you know, all meeting in Brian's flat. We had to sit down together because we didn't have social media, but now you can, you know. And if you're serious about making work, then then be serious about it. It's got to me. I have to say, the only work of mine that really matters is stuff where it's where it mattered to me more than anything else that was I was doing at that time in my life. It's a very selfish thing making work. Um, it has to matter to you, and if it doesn't matter to you, um, it's not going to be any good. And um, yeah, so all I would say to would-be photographers today is you've got to intellectually think through what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, and who you're doing it for. Who's going to look at these pictures and why, and why is it going to be interesting? And um, if you can think all of that stuff through and then make good work to go with it, um, you'll find it's pretty challenging. It's not easy and it takes up, it occupies your imaginative space and it occupies your energy. And that's really the reason I don't do work anymore is because I, I now have multiple sclerosis. And what that does is sap your energy. Um, it, you know, there, I don't have many hours of the day when I can think clearly and um, be and uh, that's a huge frustration to me, but I would only make bad work if I tried to make work now. Um, and so, yeah, I would just say to people who, who are excited by photography, great, make pictures, but make projects. And when you make a project, know why you're doing it and what it's for. So are you happy with your body of work? Um, uh, <laughs> well, what's interesting is that I thought it was all rubbish. Uh, all the time, whenever I made anything, I thought it was appalling. I thought it was bad, and I always wanted to make it better. And uh, and I could, it, it, you know. But then, as I look back, it, it is distinctive. You know, when when the um, the national portraits, the pictures from the bus, just the original portraits, Val showed them at the Tate in her in that big that 2007 show that the tape started to embrace photography and they did this big exhibition called How We Are. And they had a electronic display of 41 of my bus portraits playing in sequence. 
and um, they were a standout part of the show. You know, they they I was blown away by seeing them because they were very distinctive. And what I recognised about these pictures from you know nearly at that stage, more than thirty years since I'd taken them, was that I was all over them. You know, like these people are responding to me, a younger me. They're not um, just uh, um, uh, posing for a camera. And that's why they're distinctive. At, it, it took me 30 years to realise that they, they're any good because I did never thought they were. I just thought I was taking pictures to give away to people and trying to make something nice for them. You know, so often I'd say to people, how would you want to be photographed? And there'd always be some clever dick who dropped his trousers and showed me his arse or something, you know. And there, those, was that in Newcastle, was it? Was it? <laughs> uh, Sorry, that's but, types. I'm putting yeah, the types together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't remember. But anyway, it, it did happen. And um, yeah, uh, um, but I always wanted to make something nice for them. And um, so I'd engage with them, you know, because I, I knew I was only going to press the button once. And that made those pictures very distinctive. And um, yeah. So you were impressed by your own work. You thought, these are good. Yeah, when I look at them 30 years later, I thought, yeah, actually, now I see them in the tape. They're not bad, are they? So you were you, okay, so that's interesting. Were you impressed with them? as, as, as photos in their own right. So did you think that's a lovely composition or it's, it's a no, captured I... a moment or was it just like, these are far better than I remember? Oh, I see. When I saw them 30 years later, yes, or 25 yeah, yeah, yeah. years later. Yeah, no, it was, they are far, far better than I remember. I mean, I hadn't even bothered to keep prints of them for myself at the time. When in, the book that I, in the book that I published in 1975, <coughs> I think there are only 10 of those pictures in the book of 160 pictures or thereabouts. But the passage of time is so interesting. Photography does, you know, it has this thing that it is freezing something. It's Photographs are always in the past. And I, um, I find, you know, as time passes, they, they develop a patina of kind of interest that they didn't have at the time. You know, the, the clothes people are wearing, the, um, the, 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 uh, the, something about the openness of expression is also quite interesting. If people aren't used to being photographed, there's a, they have an openness of expression that people who are used to being photographed don't. Well, that doesn't happen today, is it? Because no, everybody's used to being photographed. Yeah, we're in this selfie culture where... Everybody uh, has a photo. Everybody taken. takes their pictures all the time. Um, I, I look back at my even my childhood. It's like, why are there any pictures of me until I was three? Mm. Oh, they're all on slides. Yeah, we yeah. didn't print them. They, they, yeah. so they're stuck around a drawer somewhere on yeah. slide that no yeah. one looked at because yeah. my dad just thought slide film was the go at the time. But, you know, there wasn't that. Certainly now, we look back at taking photos of my own children. I mean, I did, I did take a photo a day for the first year of my eldest son's life. Yeah. And that soon tailed off on the second yeah. one. <laughs> but, you know, it was that kind of want, wanted to document it. And, yeah, but there's more. I mean, my grandchildren have been photographed more times than I was photographed in my entire childhood. And they're only, you know, the eldest one's only four. So, yeah, there's millions of photographs of them. And it's lovely. I love having the pictures of them. And we stick them all over our fridge. And they're all over our computers and our, uh, you know, our devices. And we show them to to our friends, you know, look at this, this is our new granddaughter, da, da, and they show us theirs, and it's lovely. I just love all that about photography in the modern world. It's, you know, and, and also it's it's a wonderful tool, you know, like we've just been doing some work in the house, you know, and we've had plumbers and builders and stuff in, and uh, 
and the amount of time when you, you, you know, we're using our devices to shove it under the fridge yes. to photograph the serial number of some the- of your finest work i believe uh, <laughs> yeah i mean it's such a brilliant tool can't wait for that book to come out <laughs> serial numbers of domestic appliances yeah. i own i'm sure i'm sure you know what i'm sure there's a website somewhere there's yeah. an instagram feed somewhere full of that yeah um it would be remiss um not to just mention there's a there's a factory records connection there as well isn't there? there's a you did work with yeah. tony wilson i did yeah um in the in 1978 um, after the bus and after my period as artist in residence in the borough of Pendle, I was really finding it hard to earn a living. I could, I was, I was earning enough money. I was always could earn enough money to keep myself going, keep a car going, keep filming the cameras, and keep working, very intensely. But it's very, it's very like being a monk or something. You know, you're very, very committed to uh, the hard slog. And I, um, and I did a story for the Observer which paid reasonably well for the Observer magazine, which was a story I researched. Um, in a, it's a story about a particular ward in a psychiat- psychiatric hospital in Manchester. It was published. and But I was still exasperated because I wanted to get married and I wanted to have a family and I, couldn't, I just couldn't see how I'd ever earn enough money to su- support a life like that, um, doing the work that I was doing. And I applied to be a researcher at Granada TV. Um, I was living in the northwest. I knew the area pretty well. I thought maybe I could get a job there. And I never really heard, never heard, never heard. And then suddenly, out of the blue, I got an invitation to go. And it turned out that the story that I'd done had rather trod on a story they were planning to do for World in Action at Granada. And I think they were a bit pissed off. At my interview, a World in Action producer was present just listening to me talk about this ward and because I went to live for two weeks with these mental patients in this ward it was very a very stressful thing to put myself through and I made this set of pictures Um, I won't bother telling the whole story now but it it was a very powerful story and I the world in action team were a bit miffed that I got there first Um, and Anyway, to cut a long story short, they used to get 3,000 applications for every job they had going there. And they offered me a job as a researcher. And you can't say no when that kind of, you know, you've been put to the top of the list. And also, they were paying real real money for the first time in my life. I'd have a job with real money. And, um, And I wanted to earn some money. So I went to work at Granada TV as a researcher, and I wasn't very good at it. I found working in a team difficult because I'd always worked on my own. Um, I found um, working to type, you know, like you you, you were making form, very formulaic TV. Um, I, uh, and I wish they'd put me through a proper training course like I put people through later when I was working at the BBC. But they didn't. You were just supposed to kind of pick it up on the hoof and um, blah, blah. And also it was a time when... They were massively overmanned. There was a huge um, union, trade union thing going on in the media at that time, and they were hugely overstaffed. And basically, there was quite a lot of time we sat around not doing very much. Um, and I did, and we had this big open plan office in the local programs uh, department. And Tony Wilson sat at one end of it, and I sat at the same big desk. 
and I got to know him a bit and we chatted and he'd finished doing So It Goes and we'd started working on What's On which filled the same same slot in the evening um, What's On was a you know what it says on the tin it explained to the people of Manchester entertainment wise what was on that week and, and you know what new music was about what new theatre was going on what new uh, anything in the arts was going so on so what time was this 78 was this so this was between I did it between 78 and 80 and um, Wilson knew I was a photographer and he could see that I wasn't you know I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole and one day he just said to me, um, do you fancy doing some pictures of some of my bands? And uh, I can't remember the order in which these things happened, but there were three principal events that I did for Wilson. Four, actually. Come to think of it. One of them was we made a film on my programme, What's On, about John Cooper Clark. And part of the film was in the factory in Hume where there was a... Buzzcocks night, Buzzcocks were playing, and um, I can't remember what the other band was. See, I'm that crap <laughs> remembering these things. Sorry, but certainly Buzzcocks played, and um, John Cooper Clark was performing, and we filmed a lot of that. Um, and I took a lot of stills that night. Um, that was one thing. Then there was an. Then he said, um, "Could I photograph Vinnie Riley, um, who is basically this really lovely, yeah, sweet guitar player, uh, who was being promoted by Wilson as a band called Derutti Column, <laughs> yeah. but basically it was just Vinnie sitting in wherever he'd played playing, um, um, with a little bit of help from well, quite a lot of help from Martin Hannett, the producer." And the day I photographed Vinny, I went down to um, factory had um, uh, they operated out of um, a flat in Wilbraham Road, basically. And um, I went down there um, to photograph Vinny. And Vinny is, is, is or was anyway. Um, I think it's pretty well known that he's very introverted and. I think he suffers from, I don't know whether he's bipolar or anyway, has quite a lot of personal issues that often make him appear very shy and so on. And uh, I managed to get a nice picture of him, which was used in Sounds magazine. And that Sounds, the weekly, is it weekly? Yeah, weekly. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah weekly um, pop music newspaper. And, but while I was there, you know, it was like Wilson had said to me, um, Go gently, you know, Vinny's got issues, so don't push, you know, and you'll get a picture. And so when I got there, there were all these people sitting around, which I later learned were members of Joy Division and um, you know, others from factory hangers-on, sitting about with sheets of sandpaper. And they were constructing the album sleeve for Vinny's... The Return of the Dirty Column, which is a lovely album that Wilson was about to release on Factory Records. And, um, you know, I just joined in making this album. The idea, it was, it came from 
you know, the situationists in Paris, Guy Debord had written a book that had a sandpaper cover and when you pulled it, the idea was that it, you know, was culturally destructive, not just in what was written in the book, but what was um, uh, the fact that if you put it on the shelf, it destroyed the covers of the books either side of it. So uh, Wilson wanted to make a, a record that was like that. He put the record to leave and it destroyed the music on either side of it. And so they had these square sheets of, um, well, I don't know, how, an album's, what, 12 inches 12 or whatever, inches, yeah. Yeah, 12 inch square pieces of sandpaper. sandpaper. And um, we were assembling them. And they, had, they hadn't quite worked out what the album sleeve would look like or how it would be. And we were sitting around, you know, I just joined in. And I remember um, somebody handing me, perhaps it was Alan Erasmus or somebody, handed me a spray gun silver paint spray and a and a um stencil and i put the stencil onto the the um the uh the sandpaper and i sprayed the return of the dirty column um, then i went off and photographed vinnie and when i came back they said oh we've decided not to do the the silver spray so you better have that one day so they gave, I've got a one-off version of, <laughs> well, I haven't got it anymore because I gave it to the Bodleian Library. It's part of my archive in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Um, but uh, yeah, I have this album, um, which is a one-off. No one else has got the return of the Durity column with that cover. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was, I first met members of Joy Division that day. And then Wilson asked me if I'd go and photograph um, uh, them in the studio. So that was when I met Martin Hannett and I spent a night um, at Pennine Studios in Rochdale. And they were doing, they were doing several little sort of lots of pickup bits of recording. And, and, but it turns out that what they were doing with, you know, on the, the single of Love Will Tear Us Apart, it's in two versions. There's one which is the one we all know. And then on the flip side, there's another version of it. And that night they were recording the other version of it, the one that's on the B side, um, um, with another track. Oh, I can't remember what the other track is. Uh, anyway, um, so I photographed, you know, members of the band playing. And then the then he asked me again, uh, would I go and photograph them in a, doing a gig? And I photographed them doing a gig at the Osborne Club, which is in, on the edge of Miles Platting up the Oldham Road. Um, and I photographed the, that gig. And then later he asked me if I'd do all the pictures for the cover of uh, A Certain Ratio, their first album. Um, Flight, I think it was called. So yeah, that's my relationship with Factory. Um, so why not the move into that kind of? Um, well, that, you know, that photography uh, of, of musicians and that. And... Uh, well, I did again. I didn't. I was never very confident that I was very good at it. You know, I mean, none of those pictures. You know, there were many other photographers of pictures of Joy Division have been used um, since, and mine uh, didn't get used very much. Um, and but subsequently they have um because jo uh, john savage has just published this oral history of joy division yeah. um and they've used 
uh, five or six of those pictures there. So you could sell those them. prints for quite a lot of money now. There are people out there that will will bite the hand off anything Joy Division related. Yeah, I don't think Joy Columns quite commands quite the price. No, uh, or a no. certain ratio <laughs> no. for that matter. But certainly Joy Division because yeah. there's the whole mystique around them. Isn't yes, there, there is. Curtis, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So and the, it, and the last the pictures that I took were only a few weeks before he killed himself. The um, the pictures of the gig. Were you aware at the time of of that being? Um, kind of culturally an important thing yeah very much so yeah I, I mean it was weird because um uh the last i think the very last film i made or the last television item that i had a hand in at, at granada was uh the year after that i think i it would probably be oh god sorry i'm again i'm on numbers but it would be after i was doing things with with Wilson um, I went I was back in Burnley because I used to drive through Burnley on my way home to Barlick every night and um, and I, I I met some people who'd taken over the building that was once used by Welfare State International who were my uh, you know um, mentors cultural mentors you know we don't want to they're, they're from they're in a kind of parallel universe from the punk scene. But their old site, they'd moved off to um, Alverston from Burnley. Their old site was being used by the Burnley Musicians Collective and I got to meet them. And I mean, I made this really odd film with Bob Greaves. I researched it and it was, a new, it was an item on the you know, Granada reports. Of, it was, I can't remember how long it is. It's about seven minutes, I think. Bob Greaves meets the Burnley Musicians Collective, which was, uh, you know, um, I, when I listened to your podcast with Boff, yeah, he was one of the that. people yes. that is in that film. He's actually yeah. in that film that we made. So, yeah, you're asking me, am I interested in those things? Yes, I'm interested in them. Did I think I could make a career out of photographing pop musicians? No, I didn't, because I didn't think I was good enough. Um, you know, subsequently, it turns out that I should have been more confident. But at the time, I just didn't think I was doing it very well. Um, uh, that's probably the part of the story of my life is I've, you know, it's only in, in hindsight that I realized that some of the things I've done have been quite good at the time think, of doing yeah, them. I never felt there's that. There's parallels um, between you and Boff, actually, that, that when you they say the things you do. And it's it's a strange thing. It's that kind of... I think that awakening of that certain time as well. Um, yeah, I think this, you know, I think maybe what I've, what I've come to realise is that if work is done honestly and with, with proper diligence, even if at the time no one's interested in it, the passage of time, and I'm talking about documentary work here, the passage of time does bring to it something that, distinguishes it i mean I, I you know like i've done these now and then portraits of people i photographed in 74 strangers on the streets of britain and then i found them again 25 years later and i'm making them into pairs of pictures and i've shown this in different countries and i've seen people stand in front of photographs those pairs of pictures and cry because they're inventing in their head a story that's sad 
I've seen people stand in front of them and laugh. But you know, all emo all human life is in between those two pictures because our our imaginations are telling the story of what's happened to to those people in that the time that's passed between the one picture and the other one. And you know, so I've realised that the first picture did have some quality that was that was that made it more interesting than just being for the person that I gave it to, the person it's of. Time passes and it developed some kind of significance. And then you take a new picture and you build on that significance and you put the two of them together. And there's a great emotive power there. So yes, I have realised retrospectively the quality of the work. But I, at the time I've done things, I on the whole tend to be disappointed <laughs> in it. And I think that probably says more about my psyche than about my, um, you know, my, uh, my own uh, curatorial ability to recognise quality in my own work. Do you think there's room for an autobiography of uh, 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 Daniel Meadows? Or do you think your, your body of work is that autobiography? Yeah, I think the work is... I, I, I think it's it's the latter. I think the work, if you dig around in the work, you'll find the stories. And I, and so, the you know, the greatest pleasure for me is that the Bodleian has wanted to have my archive, because you know the Bodleian is one of the most famous libraries in the world. But it is a library, and it's a place where people go to do research. And when I was photographing people, they would say to me, "Why are you taking my picture?" And I'd say, "I'm going to put you in the history books." And the thing about the Bodleian is it's where history books are written. And so I've, with the, the exhibition that I've been devising that we're going to put on there in, in, uh, in um, October is, is trying to help people to realise that they could have fun researching the work. And so we're using the now and then pictures, but we're also building this um, beautiful viewing booth which has four bays in it where you can go and watch these little films because i've made there are 40 odd now little films where the people in the pictures talk and um they're very short some of them are less than a minute the longest is f uh, five minutes uh, but most of them are you know nearer one minute than five so you can go to an exhibition and then while you're there you go into a booth and play the play the stories of people talking and that it, it introduces you to the idea that this is a little window onto a massive archive that the Bodleian has and um, you can you know get a library ticket go to the Bodleian and you, this stuff can be called up out of the basement and you can handle the prints you can look at my notebooks you can read my diaries it's all there you know can you listen to the Jury to Column album you can listen. Well, it's certainly you can look at it. I don't know whether they, whether they let you play it, but um, you can certainly look at it. <laughs> you can handle. You can handle the 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 only yeah um, Duruti, the, the return of the Duruti column with this uh, silver sprayed uh, yeah over the over the uh, sandpaper. I might have to make a journey just to do that. <laughs> uh, so thank you for talking to me today, Daniel. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you for coming all this way.